If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Women Physicians Lead, hosted by Dr. Lisa Herbert, helps women physicians move from surviving to thriving in their personal and professional lives. Dr. Lisa shares leadership tips, burnout support, stress management strategies, and inspiration from women physicians who've made remarkable transitions into leadership roles. There's a fantastic episode that you should check out called Taking Care of Yourself During the Journey about how women physicians can care for themselves while on their leadership journeys. Check out Women Physicians Lead on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. Today's episode is with Lily Bennett. She's the first physician assistant in the state of Minnesota to solely own her own practice without an MD partner. While changes to the Affordable Care Act are getting lots of attention, there's much happening behind the scenes as the state of care delivery is changing in the U.S., especially in the areas of primary care and urgent care. And Lily has some great insights for us. Her entry into medicine started with her experience as a military medic, which later led her to working with Mexican migrant workers at a hospital in rural North Carolina. She's been in Minneapolis for the past five years and just recently set up her new care delivery service, Mobile Med, to offer care to underserved populations in the Twin Cities area. I'm excited to have her here as my guest. Here is my conversation with Lily Bennett. Welcome, Lily, to the podcast. Thank you, Jeremy. It's nice to be here. So I want to get into the question that uh, about health um, to get a little information. I'm collecting this this data. What what does health look like to you? What does health look like to me? That is simultaneously a simple and incredibly complex question. On the simple end of the spectrum, I would say that health is a state of well-being, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. Uh, We'll add that third dimension in there. On the more complicated end of the spectrum... As a physician's assistant. As a physician assistant and a provider, practitioner of healthcare, there's a lot that goes into achieving that state, maintaining it. Mm Mm-hmm and making it optimal. Um, First is having the basics in life, uh, according to, you know, Maslow's hierarchy. So at the foundation, we have, you know, shelter, food, clothing, the basic needs that uh, we have there. And, and as we go up his hierarchy, um, you know, when you, when you meet the foundation needs, you have, you have one level achieved. And, you know, if you have shelter and you have food and you have clothing, then your body can be uh, in relatively good shape. Uh, But even that starts to get a bit more complicated. Like when we talk more about food and nutrition, often I think of this as the first component of the practice of medicine, what we put into our bodies uh, obviously affects our health tremendously. Uh, as we know more about chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease, we know that these 
conditions arise from lifestyle problems that are related to the foods that we eat and other components such as if we're living a sedentary lifestyle, if we're not getting enough activity, exercising, so forth. So, so food is medicine. Yeah. That's one level. Yeah. Um, being able to be active, so getting out and uh, engaging in some sort of physical activity. Uh, since we're not hunter-gatherers anymore, we're not always out <laughs> chasing things or, yeah. you know, having to build things. And uh, our lifestyles over the years have become increasingly, on the whole, more sedentary. Getting out and doing some sort of physical activity uh, to maintain uh, our muscles and our bones and keep our blood vessels and all that in good shape. Yep. And... Um, access to to healthcare services, which is, you know, this is where we're getting even more kind of into the complex end of things. You know, food, exercise, uh, these are more simple, but um, uh, having access to healthcare is when we start getting into things that are more complex. And uh, what what can healthcare providers offer us? Well, um, building a, a relationship with a healthcare provider helps people become healthier, maintain their current state of health, uh, improve their health, um, because we can act as uh, kind of coaches or people who guide uh, processes that help improve people's health. And and, and even just as a touchstone, like I feel like while I'm not a doctor, a lot of people come to me as, I mean, as, as a, as their confidant sometimes, like, you know, I haven't been doing this very well. Sure. This is what's going on. I really need to, you know, develop a, a plan for myself. And since I do, you know, some exercise and body work together, I sometimes just put together that part of their plan. And um, amazingly, they do so much better once they're in a routine with that stuff. Right. It, it, it almost makes them pay more attention to everything else, their food, sure. their stress management, their whatever we want to call spiritual aspect of what they're going through in their lives with their job, family, relationships, et cetera. Right, right. So I, I feel like we, and I, I feel like I have a team of those people. So, <laughs> and I, and I need is, to have which that. Which is great. It's good to have a good support network. Yeah. Yes. And so as healthcare providers, we can function as part of a patient's support network. We're one piece of it. Yeah. And just having someone to go to who has a non-judgmental ear and yeah. can help look at our situation, a patient situation, and say, hey, this is where I see some opportunities for you to improve your health, uh, really, I think, is valuable to patients. Yeah. So you've been back in Minneapolis for five years. You you grew up here? Almost five years. Well, uh, technically, I'm a Minnesota native. I was born here. Okay. My entire family is from the New York, New Jersey area. Where where in that area? So my, my mother's family actually emigrated from Stoke-on-Trent in England, which is um, a hub for pottery and China. Uh, you you notice my my wife's uh, yeah, uh, I see that. ceramicist? That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. And... My great-great-grandfather had a China decorating company, and they emigrated to Trenton, New Jersey, and opened a China decorating company there. Interestingly, he trained William Lennox how to decorate China. Wow. So it was initially... 
the W.H. Tatler Decorating Company. And then when my grandmother's brother took it over, it became Tatler of Trenton. And I think the factory closed in the late 40s or early 50s sometime. Um, So my mother's family was from the Trenton Ewing area. And my father's family, I'm not sure if he... If his father was born in the United States, but his mother was French-Canadian. Okay. And I'm not sure if she was born in the United States either, but um, if if she was, then her mother wasn't. And they were from in various areas in Canada. And uh, my father grew up in Syracuse, New York. Okay. And his father was a surgeon, went around with General Patton during the war. And, wow. Wow. Um, was a surgeon in the army, was drafted into the army. So uh, when he came back to the United States, he had, while he was in Africa, come down with a respiratory infection, which I'm going to assume was likely fungal and, um, didn't live long after that. Hmm. Uh, but so Is my parents a- met at Syracuse university. Okay. Okay. So, That's right. Yeah. So, so with your, with your history with medicine and, Working with General Patton, did, did that influence you getting? I know you 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 were at Fort Bragg. Correct? Yeah, and it's such a romantic story, right? And and my my grandmother was his operating room nurse, so oh my god, you know, it's just this really kind of fantastic story. And um, when I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, I had kind of a basic interest in medicine, and thinking about it, I was like, wow, you know, it's a lot of time and effort to get this education. It's also a lot of money. And I turned to my dad. I was like, dad, what do I do? And he's like, join the army, you know, kind of (laughs) gruffly. (laughs) I was like, okay. And so I thought about that. And I was like, you know, actually, the army would be a really good place for me to try on medicine to see how I like it before I really commit all this time and money to an education process. Because really, I feel like for a lot of people, and and I've known quite a few people who once they get into medicine, really don't like it, but it's such a long process to get the education. And most people are in such debt once they've completed it that you're kind of, most people feel locked in. And I didn't want to feel that way. So it was a wonderful opportunity for me to try the field on. I negotiated for... um, being stationed in a hospital, which initially when I, you know, when you first have an interest in joining uh, the military, you go into what's called a MEP station, okay, which is a military entrance processing station. And they talk to you and they tell you, this is what you're going to do. And instead I was like, well, this is what I want to do. And they <laughs> were great. like, no. And I said, okay, I guess you don't really need me. And I left. Was it, was this straight out of high school? Had you been to college or? I hadn't been to college. I was uh, 21. Okay. So I'd worked for a few years yeah. and, and. Just, um, just frustrated enough with the service world probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I realized I was like, I'm really not going anywhere. And at the time I was really, you know, for lack of a better word, ignorant regarding 
you know, how people go about to get an education. I had no idea that there was such a thing as financial aid. I thought that if you wanted to go to college, you just had to have the money and that was it. I had never stepped foot into a college to ask. And I was like, well, I have to solve this dilemma. How am I going to do it? I'm going to join the army. (laughs) You know, I'll get the experience. I'll figure out if I really want to do this and I'll get some money for school. So a week later, they called me and they were like, you've got it. You, You can you can be stationed at the hospital and we're ready for you to sign. And I said, okay. Nice. So that started that journey there. So, so what was the beginning of that process? Like you, you're, you go through training, basic through training, basic training, which is nine weeks. Okay. It was a lot of fun. It was in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, which is in the middle of nowhere. And, also why it's fondly called Fort Lost in the Woods, because it is literally in the middle of nowhere. And probably the most striking thing for me is that you, once you enter into basic training, you don't have contact with TV, radios, nothing. You're just out in the middle of nowhere, and it is so disorienting. You're not really sure what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> a unique experience for just about any American to like be yes. in that situation for even a week, probably. And this was nine weeks. So it just really is. An, it's like stepping into a parallel universe. And that was what was most compelling for me. Um, but it was good. And then from that, uh, everybody goes through basic training. Then you go on to what's called AIT, Advanced Individual Training. That's where you learn your MOS, Military Occupational Specialty. Okay. For people who are involved in medicine, they always go to Texas to train at Fort Sam Houston. Yeah. So I spent 10 weeks training there to be a medic mm. and had the civilian equivalent degree of EMT. Yep. Although military medics do not function. there. There's really no exact civilian equivalent, but it's similar to how a physician assistant practices. Oh, interesting. Depending on where you are. Now, I knew I wanted to get a lot of experience, so that's why I bargained to get stationed in a hospital. Hmm. So for me, I got to learn how to close wounds by stapling, suturing, gluing. I got to do things like pump people's stomachs, start IVs, give medications. I took um, histories Uh, and did physical exams. I didn't prescribe medication, but I did a lot of really intensive work that got me some really good nitty-gritty experience, and that really sealed the deal for me. Oh, yeah, for sure. started working in a hospital where in North Carolina? So w- once I was done with the military, I went on to school and I was a National Health Service Corps scholar. Okay. And basically that means that they paid for my tuition and some expenses in exchange bill? for, nope, oh. unrelated to the okay. military okay. actually. I got the GI Bill when I was an undergraduate and I also had a merit scholarship. And then for graduate school, for my medical school, um, I was an NHSC scholar, and they pay for your your tuition and supplies and so forth and expenses. And in exchange, you work in an underserved community mm-hmm. for a certain amount of time. My commitment was two years. Okay. I started off working at a rural community health center that... In, in what, what area? This was in Walstonburg, North Carolina, okay. which is a really rural area. 
um, the most recognized kind of medium-sized city that's nearby is Greenville. Okay. And this clinic serviced primarily, I'd say, 98% uh, Mexican migrant farm farm workers. Wow. And I was the sole provider there in clinic. So I saw patients in clinic five days a week. And then I also went out to the farms two nights a week to provide healthcare on site and counseling and preventive services. Okay. And that was amazing. Um, what, what, what did you, what, what, what kinds of things were you treating at that point? Were you basically kind of almost like primary care person for them or were you yes, seeing a lot of absolutely. like urgent care, emergency care things? It was kind of a mix, um, primary care. The majority of my patients were adult in spite of it being a primary care clinic. For whatever reason, this clinic just didn't have a, a large pediatric population. So it was mostly okay. adults and management of acute and chronic diseases. This patient population really suffers from chronic disease uh, with more prevalence and incidence and then earlier. So what kind of what kind of hypertension, diabetes, uh, yeah, yeah. high cholesterol, heart disease. Okay. And I think that that is a result of the culmination of genetic environmental factors. Yeah. And I think that their diet and lifestyle played into that quite yeah. a lot. And it's a different diet than they're Completely. You know, used to when they come. A lot of and they eat a lot of corn. I tend to think that there's a link there, um, mm-hmm. a strong link between their diet and these the development of these diseases and how young it happens in their lives. Yeah. But working with that population was just incredibly rewarding. Are, are you a Spanish speaker? Poquito. Ah. <laughs> Very little. That's amazing because I, I'm, I'm sure the adult population was mostly Spanish speaking. They were. I had to have a translator with me oh. at all times. Hmm. And I did know a little bit of Spanish. You know, I picked it up as I was working, but... I always had an assistant with me that could translate. And what was great about working with this population is they really had a desire to learn. They wanted to know more Mm. about their health. They were very inquisitive and intellectually curious and incredibly grateful. So they really wanted to engage with you. They wanted to participate in their health care and they wanted to know what was going on. And I found that really just very rewarding. Yeah. So, so you, then you, 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 you broke off from there. If, I, if I'm, I was transferred to the Bureau of Prisons. Oh, you were transferred. Yes. Oh. And cause they, <clears throat> I think always are running lean on providers, but they were especially lean. And, and that was also another very interesting experience working in the prison system there's an us versus them mentality yeah. and from the take, perspective take a while of to the develop inmates, trust right yeah, i'm yeah. a them yeah. you know and so it took a lot of work to establish trust with this patient population and get them to be engaged in their own health care but once you got them on board they were really advocates for their own health and really exercised their agency um and were proactive with regard to their health conditions, taking charge of that.
So, so how do you dis- how do you define a physician assistant? I, I know there's a lot of people who probably don't even know what that role is. It, you've been through medical school. This is a great question. A physician assistant is a medical practitioner. We're often referred to as mid-level medical practitioners. And we're trained in the same uh, format and content as physicians are. But the content of what we get is a little bit condensed. So we get about 80% of what a medical doctor gets in their training. The physician assistant field was born at Duke University. The first class was in 1967, Mm. and it consisted predominantly of military corpsmen. It was created essentially by physicians, and so we're trained just as they are. And the idea was that uh, physician assistants would work alongside physicians to provide care in areas where there was a lack of care, lack of access to care. So essentially in underserved communities and especially also like in the military. Yeah. So because I'm trying to understand this for myself sometimes, because I'm on the more integrative holistic side, what's the, how, how close now are the, the PAs and NPs, the nurse practitioners? Our training is very different. Is it? We function in essentially the same role, but the training is very different. So as I said before, physician assistant training is modeled on MD training. Nurses, nurse practitioners are trained on the nursing model. And to be honest with you, I'm not totally familiar with how they're trained (laughs) because I've never been to nursing school. Often patients will say, oh, you used to be a nurse. And no, sir, (laughs) or ma'am, I I don't know anything about what nursing school is like. And But what I do know about nurse training is that it centers on being supportive So nurses, when they are initially trained, they don't diagnose or treat medical conditions. Mm -hmm. They offer the supportive measures that go along with patient care. And then when they go on to become practitioners, they learn how to diagnose and treat. But the way in which they go about it is different than PAs. Okay. Because I'm just, I'm curious because of where you're sort of leading into your career with, with, you know, being the first licensed PA in in Minnesota <laughs> or in Minneapolis is it city to city or is it by the state it's by the state and and I but I also know that there are a lot of a lot of NPs who are starting to like become the heads of like yes. clinic offices which one of my friends who's a doctor just ended up out in in northern California at a kind of county clinic I think pretty big place but um, they had no MD there until he showed up Right. And it was all run by NPs. So it's, so the nurse practitioner field. It's changing, um, I know, kind of quickly right now. It is changing, and they have more lobbying. Uh, hopefully the PA uh, field, you know, we're getting more lobbying groups together and so forth. But one way in which the N- NPs are a little more advanced is in the area of legislature mm. uh, because they do have more lobbying. Yeah. And, so. and, and I, I know you said in these, some of these areas that you were working in before that there was a lack of access to, to primary care. So yes. is, is that a big part of why this shift is happening, you think? Yes. Mid-level practitioners were thought to be the providers that are going to bridge the gap with regard to the lack of access to primary care. This okay. is predominantly what has been the vision for mid-level practitioners to fill this need, to see patients who need primary care services. 
Interestingly, because physician assistants are modeled after medical doctors and our profession has sort of evolved the way that the profession for MDs has evolved in that physician assistants are increasingly specializing. There are fellowships out there that physician assistants can gain entry into so that they now have uh, structured specialty training, like for orthopedics or neurology or various other specialties. So this vision of having mid-level providers fill in that gap isn't coming to fruition as much as people had hoped it would. Yeah. So, so what, so how are you specializing then in, in this process? Well, or are you, <laughs> my main goal isn't necessarily specialization. It's to open up access for patients to care outside of the traditional delivery of care, which now I would say the majority of people receive their health services from a major corporate entity and are working through their insurance company. And this can, in a lot of ways, limit patients' access to care, the availability, the delivery of it, and the speed at which they can get care. Consistently, I have found in my practice that patients lack access to primary care services, that the waits are just incredibly long or that practices aren't taking new patients at all. And my main mission is to help ease that. So I am one of those mid-level providers that sees the vision that we can fill in the gap where primary care is lacking where primary care access is lacking. Okay. And is there a population you, you would like to work with or that you are, are most excited to work with right now? I would say that in my career, it's pretty consistent that I've worked with the underserved. And that has something that's been very enjoyable to me. But I think for me, what will be most rewarding about this is seeing patients be able to access care quickly and on their terms. Mm -hmm. And especially for those that have been struggling to get in and to establish themselves with a primary care provider, patients who really need it, who have multiple chronic conditions and are, you know, struggling with getting their conditions stable or just getting the care that they need to keep their health how do you help improve that that delivery model or what, what you know as as a pa but just in terms of i know you're you're working on starting a new business at mobile med yes so i'm currently in the process of getting my practice operational and it's uh, called mobile med and it's a completely mobile medical practice i won't be practicing in an office but bringing care to patients in their homes hmm and conducting in-home visits, as well as providing services via telemedicine services, so video visits. And I think that this will really improve access for patients to care. One, because I'm accepting primary care patients and some practices aren't accepting. Uh, Two, because I don't have, you know, a three to six month waiting list like some practices do. Uh, Patients can go on to the website, click the schedule button and a list of available appointments will come up. They simply select their appointment, whether they want it to be an on-site visit or a virtual visit, mm-hmm. and they book it and we proceed from there.
between the on-site visits and the and the virtual visits, do you always kind of plan? Do you do like maybe a meet and greet video visit to connect with them as quickly as possible? Then, in in situations where it, would they ever be coming to you for an urgent care need, or is this you know? Sure. So for patients, I plan on offering delivery of care kind of via two avenues. One is patients who are looking for primary care services can enroll in my practice. I won't be taking insurance. It's a $75 a month fee. Okay. And it gets them access to a basic primary care package, which is pretty comprehensive. Okay. And for those patients, they'll undergo an intake appointment. And that's just an appointment where we get to know each other. I review their health history, their medications. And that's in their home usually? That's in their home. Yeah. I prefer to conduct those visits in their home. I think it's a great idea because you just learn so much about the environment of the person. Sure. I mean, I think you can you can pick up all sorts of things. I, I did a fair amount of outcalls at, at one point in my career. And, right. And, and, you know, I really sort of understood what their needs were just from being in their, in their home. Right. And before we did intake <laughs> sometimes, yeah, yeah. you know, but anyway, right. go ahead. Sorry. No, no worries. And then for patients who are looking for urgent care services, but who don't want to enroll in the primary care program, I would charge just a flat fee of $125 and I still come out to the home, uh, or conduct a video visit. Um, a little caveat being that, um, video visits I tend to reserve for fairly simple conditions. And sometimes it becomes the case that we start a visit via video, but it's, I determine that it's something that I really need to see in person, yeah. in which case it would be an on-site visit. And sometimes I collect labs on site. Um, they're rapid tests that I can give results for on the spot. Other times I might have to collect blood and send it out. Yeah. Uh, and all that can be done on site. Yeah. It's amazing. I went, so my, my friend who's the doctor, who's our primary care physician, family yeah. physician, he, you know, we, a lot of times we will just be texting for a while back and forth about things. Sure. Um, using this encrypted app. And then, you know, sometimes he'll say, can you, with my daughter had a little spot on her face that looked like, you know, it could be something contagious. So I, right. I sent her a picture. He said, it looks like impetigo. Right. I, let me call a scripting for you. I didn't have to leave the house with her. I right. didn't have, you know, and she had had strep and it's a very sort of common thing after strep. So he, that's why he exactly. kind of figured it out. And there's so much that can be done. And really she shouldn't have gone into the office probably at that point because she still might have right. been contagious with a couple of different things, you know? So exactly. I just think there's, there's, there's a, there's great uses of technology. I don't, I, I, I think what you're doing is great because it really is about developing that, that human connection and the relationship between you and your care provider over, over a period of time where you actually have access to this person. $75 a month is, is such a bargain, I think. Right. And patients will have access to me via a number of different ways. They can contact me via phone. They can text me. They can email me. We can talk via video conference. And that's really something that I want to emphasize as far as how I want to engage with my patients is that I'm approachable. I'm available. Please call me. Please text me. Let's communicate. I think forging those strong relationships with patients really has better outcomes overall. Yeah. And what's nice about these urgent care services, I mean, if your daughter's sick with an, with an earache, 
you know, it could be, I would say, uh, a very kind of perfect world estimate would be that you would be in the urgent care for an hour to an hour and a half. Then you got to drive to the pharmacy, get the medication, so on and so forth. But with this, you can be at home. You don't have to bring your sick child out into a busy clinic where other people are sick, where you could possibly get sick, picking up other germs. And everything can be done in as quick as a half an hour and you didn't even have to leave. And I really enjoy delivering care in a more personable um, way that on-site visits allow me to do that. And certainly in the case of children, they're always more comfortable in their own home versus coming to a clinic, which can be kind of scary for them um, and for other patients in general. So uh, I really am excited about delivering care in this way. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's a, it's, it's a different situation. I think, I think the, the telemedical model, or there are a lot of like bigger sort of corporate telemedical companies trying to like capitalize on this use. But I I think the problem is right now is that they don't have the same kind of relationship that you are going to have with, with your people. And this is what, what my experience has been using, using telemedical is we already have this relationship. You, you know, if, if I was your patient, you, you basically know a lot about me, you know, my family, you know, my health history, you probably know my, you know, family's health history beyond me older generations because we've aside had a, from what i'm just reading on a piece aside of paper. What, because we've 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 had a little bit more time to to spend on the on the front end and and just just trying to contact a, a random urgent care person to get on telemedical for a 20 minute visit for you know 40 dollars or whatever they charge now <clears throat> it's it's better than nothing sure but for someone who has this relationship with you, they could be on vacation in, you know, anywhere basically right. and, and, and connect in with you and have that sort of trusted, you know, thing going on with you. It's, it's, exactly. I, I think it's, I really think that's the way things are going and should go. I'm, I'm not sure what's preventing it uh, yet, but. <laughs> well, you know, I think that the way that healthcare is delivered now, people have become very accustomed to it yeah, and. It takes a little bit of work to break out of the box and provide other opportunities. I think patients are ready to see other opportunities to access care. Yeah. And I think with, you know, millennial generation is already starting to look at, at things differently. I think the, 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 there are even a certain group of, of people in the, in the baby boom generation that I think are, are looking for, something different than they had now just because of the, sure. the, the the time consuming nature of the process that that you're talking about so i think it's up and coming like you know with, ba- within a couple boomers, of years those are my parents they're yeah. baby boomers yeah. and when my mom and dad were little the doctor still came to your house to see yeah. you so they have a recollection of this more personal delivery of healthcare so and prefer I, it i think exactly and with the telemedicine service, this opens up bringing, you know, using technology in a way that benefits patients. So I feel like delivering care in this way, doing on-site visits, having telemedicine, being able to communicate via text and email really appeals to a very broad patient base because it meets so many needs yeah. and it really gets patients connected with their provider. Yeah. And I, I think we need to we need to support the PAs right now and and woot, woot. you know get get <laughs> get some more of you out there doing this work. It's, Absolutely. Uh, so, well, thank you for ex- explaining you know 
what what PAs Thank you. are. And, and, and actually, and, my my short term goal, of course, is to get me out there yeah. with patients, but. Yeah. Uh, the the long range goal is to create a team of providers yeah. to again really just try to fill that gap where patients are lacking access to primary care. So yeah. stay tuned. Okay, <laughs> thanks so much for for coming out here with me. Thanks very much. All right, talk to you. I think Lily's on to something with mobile med, and I see the future of care delivery taking shape. It makes me very happy to see mid-level health providers serving the greater needs in our communities, where access to care is either very limited or comes with long wait times, which can obviously cause more costs and health problems long term. Her experience with migrant workers in North Carolina reminds me, too, that there are a lot of people on this planet simply trying to make the most of their lives, coming from places and situations we may not understand. And they are very near to us, no matter what city or area we live in. And that when we recognize each other, pay attention, and offer what we can in terms of help and support, not only are we gifted back something invaluable personally, but our efforts have a ripple effect that goes beyond our communities. Meeting people like Lily gives me hope that there are still good people out there in this world, dedicating their lives to individuals and communities. And I think she laid out well from her perspective as a health provider what health looks like where it comes from, and what we can do to support it. Nice work, Lily, and best of luck to Mobile Med. As always, let me know what you thought of this conversation. Your feedback is very important to me. Thanks for listening. Take care of your planet. Be good to each other. Be kind to yourself. Be well, my friends.